I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. This is Death by DVD, and I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? And this episode begins with a warning. The subject matter for this episode could be extremely triggering. We're going to be talking about death, dying, taking your own life, suicide. And with that, listening discretion is deeply advised. We regularly talk about death and dying on this program because it is a horror show, but nevertheless, some of the topics that we're going to be covering on this episode are disturbing. They could be considered offensive, and they most certainly could be triggering. But with that out of the way, we'll go ahead and announce the movie for this episode instead of dragging on for 10 minutes. So you can do a quick Google search and find out for yourself if you would like to continue listening to this if you think you're up to it. The movie is Der Todesging 1990. It's a German movie. You could even say a West German movie by one of my favorite artists. And I mean that sincerely. Jörg Bootgerit. I've discussed his work before previously on this program, and I do believe there was a warning on that episode. That was Valentine's Day 2021. We did Necromantic. And since we've got the warning out of the way we've announced what the movie is, we can just jump right into it. So we've talked about Necromantic before, and sure, you can go back and listen to that episode and maybe learn something about Jörg Bootgreet, but I'm gonna do it again, in case you don't know anything about him, or you didn't hear that episode. And, well, he's a German writer and director. Most famously and infamously, he has Necromantic, Necromantic 2, Der Todesking, which came out in between those two films, Necromantic's 87, Der Todesking's 90, shot in 89, shot almost directly after Necromantic, and Necromantic 2, which sort of followed in suite with Der Todesking, and then you've got Shram from 1993. And that's just feature length, there's much more. Now, I would like to dedicate more time to Jorg, because I've already said he's one of my favorite artists. But unfortunately, this episode is not going to serve as a biographical piece for Jörg Bootgreet. And I'm sure as the show progresses, I will pronounce his last name different multiple times. And I apologize for that. Now, when you begin something with a statement as personal as this person is one of my favorite artists, you usually would take a moment to explain that. I'm not going to. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about this film. And by doing so, I hope that you could understand or see why I consider him one of my favorite artists. And I'll make a bold statement before we really get things going here. I liken Jorg to someone like Hermannius Bosch, the painter. Painted very famous visions of hell, biblical paintings. Incredibly detailed and vast landscapes of death and woe and pain and suffering. But when you look into the painting, when you look into the meaning of the painting, for the most part, they're not as dreary as you would think. They're, they're very righteous. They come from a extremely under-the-love-and-cloak-of-God's-true-love place. And his paintings are constantly misconstrued, and they're used inappropriately, they're referenced inappropriately, they're spoken about inappropriately because of the visuals, because of the, the visual representation of what you are perceiving without acknowledging, perhaps, more than meets the eye. 
And I think Yorick Bootgreet is very similar in those aspects. His movies are often looked upon by the masses, the horror underground or whatever you want to say, since Necromantic came out, has adored him for the exploitation aspects of his films, the boundaries that he crosses, the visuals that he brings forward. But with all of his movies, Necromantic 1 and 2 included, I think there's a much deeper message, and you can go back as I've already referenced several times and hear that episode about Necromantic where I talk endlessly about the movie means much more than just fucking a corpse. And now that we have gotten onto this subject, the movie that we are going to discuss, or rather are discussing, isn't any different from any of that. This movie, I, I feel, my humble, my personal opinion, Hank, the world's greatest personal opinion, is that this movie is very misconstrued, is that this movie is more often than not considered to be an exploitation film, a gore film, and yeah, there's there's violence in it, there is exploitation in it, but there's a little bit of everything in this movie. And at first glance, all of Yorg's movies seem to have something in common, that being death. But when you really start to examine them, there's much more. There's, there's many fine layers that transcend beyond death. Life and death, obviously. Love, life, and death. You can keep tagging things onto this list. And Der Todesking, though comparable with all of these themes of life, love, and death, I think has a, a, a much grander scheme to all of it. I think there is a, a greater landscape. This film is criticized heavily for being pro-suicide, and you're going to experience a great deal of suicide. But you've got the same style of criticism when it comes to Necromantic 1 and 2. This movie's about corpse fucking. This is an atrocity. This is not art. This is not a movie. This is pornography. You can go back for ages and ages and ages and read people's absolute hatred and utter disdain for this man's work. Shot on 16mm before the Berlin Wall fell, this movie, I think, has two different souls to it. You have a Western audience that watches this. A lot of the things that are captured in this movie have no feeling to a Western audience because they don't know exactly what's going on. And the, the tone this movie has, the way it's set up, it's a West German movie. It's one of the last West German movies, I guess you could say. And I think a lot of the disdain that comes from that time period is captured and European audiences that were able to sit down and understand things, especially Germans, Austrians, people around that area. The movie has different connotations. The movie has a different vibe. And when you enter things into, for lack of better terms, the horror underground, there is no understanding anymore. It either is gory and there's lots of death, or it isn't. And I'm not trying to talk down on any specific scene, but that's genuinely what you get. You try to throw a story, you try to throw plot devices, you try to add deeper meaning into things, and it's like, well, yeah, but where's the tits? Where's the gore? Where's the violence? I don't want to think which is a shame, and this movie has been caught up in that, and uh, everything, I can just unfortunately get repetitive here, and it's just a waste of time, because everything that York Budegreed has done has gotten stuck in this vicious cycle. Yeah, there are a lot of things that you could deem atrocious that he visually shows you on screen, there are a lot of disturbing things, there are massive amounts of gore in some cases. There is corpse fucking in Necromantic, but I'm almost certain I've said this before. Just because a director shows you certain things on screen doesn't mean that that's them, that that's not a representation of them, it's not their life, it's not that they're going home and doing these sort of things, it's what they're showing you. It's a story, it's a message, it's, it's something more than meets the fucking eye. Damn, I'm really getting repetitive now. Alright, so death is obviously a common thread when it comes to this man's work. We've gotten through that. Dare Todas King stands unique on its own because of its open interpretations. 
Not just the movie itself, but even in the name. What's in a name? Absolutely everything in some cases. Der Todesking. It's not really a German word. It's a bastardization. It's a combination. It features an English word, king, because there is a German word for king. So really, it's impossible to translate. You could almost interpret it as to how you watched the movie. It could mean the king of deaths. It could mean the king of death. It could mean the death king. All of these have, or could have, very different meanings, very different interpretations on their own. And the entirety of the film itself follows in suit of that. So you begin this movie, you look at it conceptually, you have a title that really can't be translated, that there are so many different meanings for what this title could be. You look at this, the King of Deaths, the Death King. You look at the translation of this movie, and what is this movie? It is a movie about suicide. It is a movie about death. The movie begins on a Monday and ends on a Sunday, and every single day of the week we see somebody die. By their own hands. More or less. And with that explanation, it seems completely reasonable to where you could see why people would consider this an exploitation movie, why this would be considered an exploitation movie, and why, I'm just going to say prude people, and I don't mean that in the sense of you can't take movies about suicide, or you can't take movies that, I should have said this at the beginning, that feature animal death, which, uh, I'll, I'll get to that scene when I get to that scene, but I know when I say that you're thinking a dog or a cat, or maybe Francis Ford Coppola style a fucking ox or whatever that was in Apocalypse Now. Some sort of poor donkey. It was a ritual that they filmed, but still, I feel bad for the donkey. It's not, and it's still, we'll fucking talk about that when we talk about that in a little while. I feel like that came out very southern, in a little while. But this film has a duality. And if you've seen Necromantic, if you're familiar with this man's work, you'll understand that it does have a very student film look to it. And I, I don't care for a term like that, that there are student films, and if there are student films, you fucking call them that. But when there are movies that are shot on 8mm, like Necromantic was, and then it was blown up to 16, and then that 16 eventually was blown up to 35 to show at film festivals, or something like Dare Todesking, which was actually... They had the money for it this time. They shot on 16mm. It does have a certain look. There are scenes in this movie where you can see the camera and the shadow to it. And I know this might be a lot for people to, to take. Things like this appear in movies, and they are faults. So they are things that you need to take into consideration when you're rating a movie like these numbers fucking matter at all. I gave the movie a 3.5. All right, but it's still, like, they, they don't matter. They're not real numbers. It's all opinion. Remember that. But yeah, you, you see the camera shadow, you see a boom mic, something like that, it's a fuck-up. But you can get past it. Sure, it might knock your rating down the scale, but you can get past it. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes movies are, are fuck-all bad. They're really, really bad, and you can't get past it. But in this situation, in what I'm discussing, I think at this point, I've said it several times, I, I, you, you can acknowledge I like this artist, I like this movie, so I'm not going to sit here and point out where you can see the cameras in this scene... And in this one, you can hear some overdubbing that didn't quite work for me. You can look past it. You can look right past it. See, there it goes. You're looking right past it right now. And in many situations, like this film situation, they only had enough money and they only had enough time for certain shots. So you go back and you're watching it later. Many times, you can go do reshoots and get that scene again. It wasn't affordable in this situation. It didn't happen. And that's an excuse and that's semantics. And it doesn't matter at the end of the day when you have a production. But being repetitive, you can overlook it sometimes, if the concept is going somewhere. And that returns us to what started this rant. The concept, uh, the idea of this movie and the multiple interpretations which there is, 
But before we get too deep into the show, let's take a quick commercial break and hear a word from a sponsor. Depression. Depression rates are at an all-time high worldwide. Are you one of the sad people? Millions experience depression all year round with no foreseeable end to the sadness. But you can sit that gun down, Johnny. Because there is another way. Herzogaquil! Herzogaquil is a way to chase the perpetual darkness that envelopes your life morning, day, noon, and night away. In fact, you won't feel anything. Herzogaquil is a high-dose tranquilizer that affects how your brain functions. Goodbye emotion! You can't feel sad if you can't feel anything. Herzogaquil, the only medication for depression sponsored by Werner Herzog. And now to tell you more about Herzogaquil, it's Werner Herzog himself. Yes, I am Werner Herzog. Uh, I, I believe the key to, to all things is pain and, uh, and suffering and, and through through tremendous pain and, and suffering, great things may be achieved. There is, is nothing but darkness, which is how we see the light. But in this case, I, I have purchased a 50-foot obelisk, an obelisk uh, made uh, entirely of, of diamond. And I, I'm going to teach the obelisk how to love. And to do this, to teach, to teach the obelisk how to love, I, I need money. I need to, to 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 get money to pay for this, my studies. So please buy, please buy my shoes. Purchase my shoes. It's medication. Herzogaquil is an FDA-approved medication. Yes, please buy the drugs. Please buy drugs. Herzogaquil. You can't be depressed if you can't feel anything, anything at all. Go through your day the Herzogaquil way. Numb. Talk to your healthcare provider today about Herzogaquil and forget all your troubles. Side effects may include hallucinations, memory loss, priapism, blood clots, compulsive behavior, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, birth defects, a painful permanent erection, unusual urges for sex and gambling, nightmares and vivid dreams, rainbow urination, silver blisters and peeling skin, blisters around the mouth, red painful palms and feet, shooting pain, numbness and tingling, loss of smell, disorientation, confusion, restlessness, inability to relax, respiratory distress for arrest, cardiac arrest, gastrointestinal distress, unconsciousness or sedation, bladder pain, bloody or colored urine, difficult burning or painful urination, fast pounding or irregular heartbeat or pulse, frequent urge to urinate, lower back pain or side pain, abnormal vaginal bleeding or discharge, agitation, arm, back or jaw 
pain, black tarry stools, bleeding from the gums or nose, blindness, bloating or swelling of the face, arms, hand, lower legs or feet, blood in the stool or change in bowel habits, bloody or bloody urine, blurred vision, broken bones, change in size, shape or color of an existing mold, change in skin color, chest pains, tightness or heaviness, chills, clear or bloody discharge from the nipple, cold hands and feet, confusion, constipation, cough, coughing or spitting up blood. Decreased urination, decreased vision, depression, difficulty with breathing, difficulty burning or painful urination, dimpling of the breast skin, dizziness, drowsiness, eye pain, fainting, fast, slow or regular heartbeat, fever, forgetfulness, frequent urge to urinate, general feeling of illness, hair loss, headache, hives, itching skin, rash, increased thirst, inverted nipple, irregular breathing, irregular pulse, irritability, light colored stools, loss of appetite, lump in the breast or under your arm, lump or swelling in the stomach, moles that leak fluid or bleed, muscle cramps or spasms, nausea, new mole, night sweats, no blood pressure or pulse, noisy breathing, numbness or tingling in your arms, leg or face, pain, redness or swelling in the arms or legs without any injury present, pale skin, persistent non-healing sores on your skin, pink growth, puffiness or swelling of the eyelids or around the eyes, face, lips or tongue, raised, firm or bright red patch, redness or swelling of the breast, seeing or hearing things that are not there, seizures, sharp back pain just below your ribs, shiny bump on your skin, slurred speech or problems with swallowing, sneezing, snore on the skin of the breast that does not heal, sore throat, sores, ulcers or white spots on the lips or mouth, spitting up blood, stiff neck, stomach pain, stopping of the heart, Suddenly, high fever or low-grade fever for months, sweating, swelling of the face, fingers, feet, or lower legs, swollen glands, swollen neck veins, tiredness, trouble breathing, trouble thinking, unconsciousness, unexplained, bruising or bleeding, unpleasant breath odor, unusual tiredness or weakness, unusual weight gain or loss, visual disturbances, vomiting, vomiting of blood or material that looks like coffee grounds, yellow skin or eyes, and dandruff. Take back your life from depression. Carpe Diem with Herzogaquil. Hey, I'm Steve. I'm CryptoZoo. And we co-host the Steve and Crypto Show, where we chat about pop culture, horror, entertainment, and everything in between. And right now, you're listening to one of our favorite shows, Death by DVD. When you're done listening to the Death by DVD gang, find us, the Steve and Crypto Show. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And now, enjoy Death by DVD. Whoa! Whoa. So, this is Radio Land, huh? Radio Land. I don't think there's any right or wrong way that you can look at this. And I would say with some of his other work, like Necromantic, there is a right and there is a wrong way. This movie is an expression of, of death. But what is death? Death is dying, we know that. And it's a tool that's used in every horror movie. It's the finalization. It's in the United States and one or two other countries. It's the heaviest penalty for crime. They kill you. 
And I would say the majority of people fear death. They fear the concept of death. They fear the idea of it as if it was an actual entity. Not something natural that happens to absolutely everything. Something that we all have in common with the work of York Putkery. We all die. Doesn't matter who we are or what we are, we're all going to die. But also on the other hand of that, we all live. We have that in common too. And we don't fear that. We don't fear life. There is no entity for life. We don't envision it. When it comes to death, you've got this skeletal thing with a long black cloak. You're afraid of it. Takes your friends, your family, your loved one, your pets. You hate it. But you don't envision life. There is no long, flowing white cloak. I mean, what's the opposite of a skeleton? Somebody with skin on? Yeah. I mean, where's that visualization? Where's the love for life? If you fear death, then you think you would love life. But most people just have this adamant fear and hatred of death. A misunderstanding, because death has multiple interpretations. Death could be multiple things, but the one thing death isn't is an entity, is a, a figurative thing, is a real thing, something that you could put your hands on. You can't strangle death. You can't smack death. You can't kill death. But we hate it and we fear it like it's a creature living under our bed about to crawl out and ruin everything that we know. So with that thought in mind, death is the boogeyman. What Der Todesking manages to do is refine that fear. I think most of this movie, you are looking at the situations, looking at these days of the week through the eyes of death. Death is not your enemy. Death is certainly not your friend. But death is not your enemy either. Death is transparent, and they're not out negatively to get to you. Death is doing its job. Death is a store clerk worker. You come in, you buy something, you leave. You don't remember their name. You don't even remember what they look like. That's what death is. It's just doing its job if it was a personification, if it was an entity. It's not coming after your great aunt out of any form of animosity. It's work. But there's a natural aspect to all of this because everything lives and everything dies. Of course, that doesn't solve pain, that doesn't solve woe, that doesn't solve misery or suffering. Some people die ghastly, painful deaths, others die by their own hand. Some live to be 105 years old and die peacefully in their sleep. Some are children that are taken way before their time and you can't understand it. Why would death do this? And I am really trying to keep religion out of this. I, I feel... Death's personification and the fear of death certainly is enhanced because of Christianity. I feel it certainly is forwarded because of, as I was mentioning earlier, even painters like Bosch, Dante's Inferno. That book gave the visual representation of what we now really consider hell. This burning hellscape, <laughs> for lack of better words, fire and sulfur and people being tortured. But before that, hell was just being away from God's love. And what happens to the people that survive death? And I don't mean you were in a near-death situation, somebody you loved, something you loved died. You have survived that. It's not a final act for you. You're, you're left in the throes and the feelings of it. All you're left to do is to take it personal. And that's really where I think, with religion included, these personifications come forward. This, this mainly, almost entirely negative concept of death. But I don't think... That death is, is to be feared. I don't think death is to be hated. It's very misunderstood, and it's affected me. I've experienced a great deal of loss in my life. And of course, I discovered this movie uh, by most of the same means that I think everyone that has seen it found it. 
I saw his other work and I wanted to see something really screwed up. And the first few times I've seen, I watched this movie, I can honestly say in the last decade, definitely, I've seen this movie ten times. I'm familiar with it. As I have aged and experienced this movie, I've looked much deeper into it. And that comes, of course, with experience. The unfortunate experience of death. And this returns to something I was talking about at the very beginning of the show, how I think Western audiences might interpret this movie differently. I think when this movie was made, it's, it's a German film. Its intentions and a lot of its plot devices and a lot of its feelings were very much of the era and where it was filmed. And our audience might not be familiar with German history, but from the late 20s into the late 40s, they had a pretty bad time. And then after that, things were rough. Things were very, very rough. The country next door, things were very rough. Everything was rough. Not a lot of pleasant stuff was going on. Now, I'm not, like, trying to lump all of German history into it. Nothing pleasant has happened in the last hundred years in Germany. That's untrue. There are lots of pleasant things. I, I can't name them, but I'm sure they've happened. They... Oktoberfest happens. Fuck. I like Germany, okay? Don't, I don't want to offend <laughs> any possible Germans listening to this show. But they did have a little bit of a hard time there in the 30s, 40s, there was some stuff going on. And it did really affect politically, not just politically, it affected not them heavily, yes, but the fucking world. And we're still in the, the reels and throws of what happened in World War II. It, it changed everything. But the culture, dare I say, I think has a lot more death in its face than ours. I'm an American in the United States. And in the United States, believe this or not, there are many states where the governors are trying to reject people learning about the awful things that happened during the Holocaust, the awful things that happened while slavery was legal in the United States. There are people that don't want this really known. They don't want to know what happens during the original Thanksgiving when the pilgrims slaughtered everyone and King Philip's War happened. They don't want to know about any of that. In Europe, especially in Germany, they educate, they teach their children, they teach people, this is what happened, these are the atrocities that happened. So you grow up with this, you grow up with this acknowledgement, and I think, I feel, I could be wrong, and I am truly apologetic if I am for uh, overanalyzing, I feel German people have a, a much greater exposure to what we would consider morbidity, What what is offensive over here, it's a commonplace over there because of things that happened in German history and people have to acknowledge it because if you don't acknowledge it, if you don't expose people to the things that happen, it's gonna fucking happen again. And this rant has a reason and, and the reason I think is, is how this movie almost has a lack of, of commonplace. I think this movie, uh, digging back, racing to where we were at the beginning of the show, is, is very misconstrued and, and boom, we're back to where we needed to be, as is death. Now, you can wax philosophical and talk about how beautiful death is, because there is an inherent beauty to it, the circle of life returning to what was once the void. You come from nothing, you return to nothing. And some of that will be present in the seven days of death that we'll discuss. But the point of this rant, where I'm trying to go with this, is the ulterior motives of this movie. It's not to beautify death, it's not to glamorize suicide, and it doesn't condone it by any means, but I think it's a, a natural showing. I, I feel you, the audience member, are watching this through the eye of death, that it's not a camera. It is in some situations, but the majority of this movie is 
almost like death waiting to do its job. You're, you're just kind of sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and then finally it's time to clock in, you've done your job, and it moves on. I think there's something really plain about that. I think there's something really plain about that concept for the movie. It, it's, it, and I don't mean plain in an offensive or, or a bad manner. It's just you read about this, you look into the film, and I'm not going to cite or name anyone specifically, but it's always discussed as being convoluted and it's hard to understand. And uh, Did you watch it? Just watch it. There's nothing to understand. It's all your interpretation. That's what you're shown. I mean, each, each piece is a little show itself. And it's a show of death, and you're watching it, and you interpret it however you want to. Now, we are going to discuss, I'm going to go through the seven days of death, and I will tell you my interpretation, what I think about it. And if you can take that as your own. There is nothing right, and there is nothing wrong, because there is nothing right or wrong with death, and there is nothing right or wrong with life. You live and you die. All the things that happen in between, the inner monologue, the narrative that you have, even when you're listening to something, if you're agreeing with something, disagreeing, when you're sitting at a fast food restaurant reading the menu and you hear that voice inside your head, all that's lost when you die, but it lives while you live. There's a beauty behind all of that. There are experiences and things that you have done, touched, smelled, that die completely with you. And we'll get into that, actually, in just a few minutes. But the fear of death. The, the fear of death as a killer. Let's use Halloween. I use that as a whipping boy so much on this fucking show, but it, it, really, it's it, John Carpenter made a perfect movie, when it, the first Halloween, when it comes to the concept of fear. And I feel the, the more recent ones, Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills, somewhat return to that, but they've even given too much of a personification to it. Michael Myers, you know nothing about. He, he's a little kid, kills some people, grows up and kills some more people. Why? Who knows? Doesn't matter. Wearing a mask, can't even see his face. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. It's really scary. What makes it really scary, and I've ranted about this before on this program, is the fact that you don't know anything. It's just evil incarnate, as Dr. Loomis says in the film, but it's the personification of death in that movie. When Michael Myers is doing something, really, it's death. It's the Grim Reaper. That's what Carpenter wanted to show you. That's the fear of it. This is death. Dare Totus King, we are death. We are watching, we are waiting. And to quote Blink-182, commiserating. But I feel the emphasis needs to be non-threatening. When you're watching this movie, you're, you, you're sitting there and watching it. You're not doing anything. You've got your hands clasped. Or maybe you're smoking a cigarette. Or maybe you're eating popcorn. But you're not doing anything. You're watching. And that's what death is doing. And really, when you think about it, your whole life, isn't that what death is doing? And not in a menacing way, but people die left and right in unfortunate accidents. They kill themselves, they die of cancer, they die of old age, they get burned to death in a forest fire, they get mauled by bears. I don't know why I'm going into the forest with this. Out of ideas, I just keep thinking about stuff that happens in forests for some reason. There are a lot of accidents that happen in forests, though. I mean, be careful, especially in state parks. People go missing in state parks a lot. It's creepy as shit. If you go to a state park, take a friend, tell somebody. But it's not personal. Death is just sitting there waiting because that's its job. That's what it's supposed to do. It's a part of nature. And yeah, nature's really scary. Damn, nature, you scary! Damn it, we're going back into the woods. Bears are fucking terrifying. When they're minding their own business, they're perfectly fine. When you invade their business, they're gonna fuck some stuff up. I mean, poor Timothy Treadwell, he wasn't even really doing something wrong. 
got eaten by a big old mean bear though because it was hungry and that's the bear's nature. And I, I know, I'm sure this is exasperating at this point because I'm, I'm, I'm overtly explaining and I'm going in and in and in and out and out and out and I'm, I'm, I'm re-explaining it and I keep getting back to the same point, but I think that's what I find the most fascinating thing about this movie is you are allowed to look at the concept of death almost as death and there is no fear to it anymore. I think the experience of this movie almost lets you come to terms with death. I want you to imagine, in your mind, what death looks like. The personification of face and entity. And then I want you to take that, and I want you to imagine death doing your job. I want you to imagine death doing a mundane task that you do every single day, that you, you do autonomously. You just do it. If death was just like us, wouldn't its business be as autonomous, as mundane, as boring to death as it is to us? If you work at a grocery store, do you come home and talk rigorously about checking people out? Or do you just try to escape and forget the fact that you have to deal with horrible asshole people all day? Death is probably the exact same way. It has to deal with people all the time. People complaining, people angry, and it's justifiably so. I mean, you're gonna die. Of course you're gonna be angry. I'm sure many people can't come to terms with the concept that they are not immortal and that everything they've done their entire life has a reflection upon other people, but that's the same way for death and we don't give it any sympathy. We don't say, well, death had a really hard life. Death has to get up and cause death every single day. I think that's a pretty shitty job. So when you experience this movie and you're watching it, I, I really take that deeply into my psyche that this movie is death sitting on a couch nearby watching this. And what really helps is the camera angles, which uh, to an extent you could say are experimental, but they're really not. There's a lot of spinning camera. There's just, a, 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 it's almost perplexing to me because it's like a fly on the wall syndrome. The way the camera is set up for almost all seven days you're a part of it, you're in the room, but you you wouldn't be sitting in a chair. The camera is set up where nothing would be, obviously, you know, maybe a, a stool or a table or something like that. But not a place that comfortably somebody would be sitting, which furthers my concept of just this force that exists. And if it had a fucking job, it would just be standing there waiting. It's not going to be some horrifying thing like The Exorcist or a James Wan movie with a, you know, Darth Maul demon popping up and stuff like that. I can't even think of the name of the movie I'm trying to reference. It's got Vera Farmiga in it. Or no, it doesn't. It's got Patrick Wilson in it, though. It's, yeah, see, God damn it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Sorry. Doesn't matter. Has nothing to do with the show. So this personification of death, this is Der Todes King, this is the Death King, this is what I think the whole movie is about. I certainly didn't intend for this whole thing about death to run as long as it has, but I, I think we've gotten somewhere with all of this, if you've bared with me. Born with, bared with me? Is that, doesn't sound right. I mean, honestly, I feel we could just end the show right now after having a philosophical chat about life and death and its representation within this movie. But I would like to continue and really discuss the seven days of death and their representations, at least to me. I don't feel that this is a specifically personal show or more personal than any other episode of this program, but at the same time, I guess we are kind of expounding on a lot of my philosophical concepts, a lot of, I don't want to say beliefs, because I don't want you to think that this isn't an inherently religious thing, but I guess beliefs. And with saying that, I would like an emphasis there 
of my beliefs, my concepts, my philosophies. I'm not trying to, to preach here or say at any point during the show this is this or that is that. Because this is a movie podcast where we discuss movies. So keep that in mind, please. Despite my opinion, death being misunderstood, it still has to do its job. So what happens when somebody takes their own life? Wouldn't that interfere with death? Wouldn't that ruin their job? I mean, on the grand scheme of things, you can believe that everything is predestined and that things are going to happen no matter what you do. Or you can believe that things happen because of, of what you do, and that's why things happen, because of cause and effect. Regardless of that, wouldn't death be present either way? Which furthers my belief that you're watching the movie via death. When all beautiful things happen, when life happens, when a new life is born, death is still present. If one thing is present, then how is the other one not there? When the sun goes down, it's still light on the other side of the planet. It's always a reversal. The two things are simultaneously happening at once, with life and death. Why would one be off while the other's on? And just like the rest of us, death has to get up for work on a Monday. The first story shows one of many letters that we will see throughout this film, and it seems to be a common misconception that all the letters are one and the same. They are not. They, for the most part, are all different. This first letter, I believe, shows up one more time in the movie? But everything else is completely different, and I feel it's easy to see if you look at the letters that are being written by this gentleman on Monday morning. He's writing a suicide letter, multiple suicide letters, and sending them out to presumably friends and family. He calls his job, politely lets them know that he will not be coming into work anymore and that he's going to quit. All the while, us, the viewer, Death, is exposed to his apartment. It's covered in posters of aquatic things, fish. He seems to have a connection to the ocean, a great connection to fish in general. And something I think is interesting, Jörg Budegreed has said that fish are confusing. It's hard for a fish to communicate. And there is no real beauty with anything you're watching. It's, it's very simplistic. It's, it's almost voyeuristic. You're watching this person eat dinner. They shave. They're writing these letters all the while in their own little aquarium. All the while, I think what we're being shown, my opinion of what we're being shown, is the detached similarities to this person. A fish trapped in a cage away from its own kind, away from its natural habitat swimming endlessly in confusion with no way to communicate to this weird beast that dumps food inside of its cage i think what we're being shown here is a representation of this person's psyche their detached feelings from the world their coldness that they're alone in this tank and all the while we're being shown a fish his fish a goldfish in a very ugly bowl it's not pretty they've not put any plants in it they've not put a heater in it there's nothing nice and that's the emphasis the character crawls into a bath and begins taking pills and drinking, and the fish begins sputtering and dying and gasping for breath. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that there was an animal that was harmed during the making of this movie. This is the scene a goldfish is killed. And I don't mean to say that without any emphasis. A goldfish was killed. It's sad, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say that I haven't said before. We've, we've discussed movies like Hannibal Holocaust and the atrocities. It's not okay to kill a fucking animal for your movie. It's 30 years old. They electrocuted it. They electrocuted the goldfish for the scene. And it, it's... I, I, I just guess I'm going to dig myself a hole here, but I'm going to be honest and state my opinion. Yes, it's very awful to kill an animal for the point of your movie. Is it necessary? No, not in the least bit. But what shows up on film and what you watch in this movie, it's devastating. And I guess this says something about me. Watching this fish die as the character dies, I feel disdain. I feel a great deal of heartbreak. I think that's the point. I think that's 
was the emphasis. And yeah, there's there's so many other ways that it could have been shown. Just pushing that aside, you go from watching this rather mundane action, somebody writing letters, talking on the phone, eating dinner, shaving, then they kill themselves. It's not dramatic. What's dramatic is you watch this creature die, you watch this fish die, and I think that's supposed to be the transition. Not everything is dramatic. Not every moment of life is dramatic, including death. It all seemed a bit quaint. It all was rather bland, but it was this person's last moment, their last significant moments on this life. All their thoughts, all their, their everything, their memories are about to die with them. It's not always action. It's not always bloody. Death is not a slasher with a mask and a butcher's knife. And that's Monday. Tuesday, I think, is... A lot of fans' favorite segment. It's not mine. And this is something that I've, I've always wondered and been a little bit confused by. We enter a man going to a video store, and there are a lot of awesome titles the camera shows us. You've got Miss 45, A Bunch of Tales from the Dark Side, Day of the Dead, Necromantic. I think Breakfast at Tiffany's is shown. The guy's wandering the video store. He picks out a movie. He picks out Vera, Gestapo's Angel of Death. And while he's checking out, he stops and he talks with the clerk and he pulls his mail out and he's got a letter and he reads the letter. And it's the suicide letter for Monday. He reads it and is talking to the clerk and says, Oh, the homeboy's gonna kill himself. To which the clerk replies, Nah, the guy's full of shit. So anyhow, this is how much you owe me. It's just things that happen in life. And I know, checking out at a video store is an antiquated thing. But it used to be a mundane activity that we did all the time. He goes home and he watches the movie. And this isn't my favorite segment, but I do think this is one of the most interesting things about the movie. Earlier I was ranting about my presumptions of German culture and how Germans have much more morbidity, have much more death, and even their childhoods than an average American has in most of their lives. They deal with a great deal of darkness, and they're educated on this darkness. That's the important thing. But there's a lot of films, there's a lot of things historically that... Everybody else can acknowledge, everybody else can see that are just outright banned in Germany. They're, they're illegal, they're, they don't exist, you can't get a hold of them. One of those things is Nazi exploitation films and Nazi sex exploitation films. And of course now, in the age of the internet, it's, it's, it's very, very different. But we jump in our time machine and go back in time. Things like Ilsa Shewolf of the SS, they were heard of, people could find them, but they were just completely forbidden. So you grow up in a culture that has to acknowledge the atrocities and the terrible things that have happened even you know before you were born in a time period that you have nothing to do with. You hear about these movies, of course it's going to be enticing. And it's like the concept in the United States, I think it's defunct now, but there used to be this program called the D.A.R.E. program where they would have police officers come to schools and they would teach children about drugs. And years later you come to find out having these cops come to schools and teach kids about drugs made them want to do the drugs more than they ever would have in the first place. That Some of these kids would have never known about crack or heroin or what it did to you when they were eight or nine years old beforehand. That it was the fucking pigs educating people <laughs> on how to do drugs. And then you wonder about the war on drugs. Wow, off subject, but still, you know, frame of reference here. It's it's a it's a, a pretty apt frame of reference. My point being, you hear about these drugs. Well, yeah, shit, I want to try that. Well, that sounds kind of interesting to me. You tell somebody about a banned movie that's a a weird sex torture film about the Nazis, and you you are living in Germany. You know that this happened in your culture, in your country. You know that this was a part of your history. Of course, you're gonna want to watch it. 
you're already into horror. And I mean, I'm saying a horror fan. I'm saying an exploitation fan. I'm looking at a 16-year-old in 1980 Germany that is into Mario Bava movies. They're going to want to find something like this. And that's really where this entire segment comes from, that I think you have a, a deep representation of not just fetishism, but pretty much fetishism from a German angle of, of going after these movies and then you find them and they're absolutely ridiculous. We've talked about many of them on this program before. The Nazi exploitation films are fucking hysterically bad. They're almost always about sex. They're almost always uh, over-the-top uh, pornographic levels of just lewd and bananas behavior. Everything is, is nonsensical, non-believable. I mean, you have films like The Night Porter, which I wouldn't say is a Nazi exploitation film, but it's an articulate sexual movie. Dirk Beauregard is, is filthy in that, and there's the aspects that were taken and formulated many, many years later, and that became the exploitation. So this guy is watching this film, and it's pretty detailed. I mean, what Jörg Bootgreed and company has done is, is pretty much done a pseudo-mock Nazi exploitation film. You get a penis being cut off. This guy is watching this at home. He's taking the movies, watching it at home. And again, you're, you're watching this from the corner of the room. You're watching him watching this and experiencing all of it as if you're a, a member of the party, as if you've been invited there and or death just sitting in the corner. And something that's clever throughout the entirety of Dare Todesking is a lot of the violence that you're exposed to, a lot of the graphic violence, death, and murder is through other venues because entirely this is suicide. That's our lead focus here. So when you see a murder, it's... A magic trick, because the murder might have not actually happened. Which is exactly the story in this case. The man we've been following who rented the picture and is now watching Vera Gestapo's Angel of Death. His girlfriend comes home and she's yelling at him something fierce, there's an issue. He whips out a gun, shoots her right in the head. And I might have not mentioned this before, but I feel the movie, I think I said something to the effects of, it's got a little bit of everything, and that's got comedy included, and I would say even a little bit of slapstick comedy. And I'm not going to boldly state that death can be comedic, but it can. It really can. He walks to the wall where her blood was splattered, and he breaks a picture of her and puts the frame right over the blood splatter. Now, it's not like, ha ha, it's not funny. Like, you, it would be psychotic to find that hysterical. It's the idea that you're being shown this. You just saw something so serious. You saw a man take all these pills and die in a bathtub all the while his goldfish is dying and sad music is playing. It was pretty traumatic, and now you're exposed to almost something laughable. He breaks the picture frame and he puts it right over the blood spot. It's got like a really punk rock attitude to it. And then we subtly cut and find out. And this is, again, I hate saying something like, I love this because it just makes you sound like a fucking weirdo. But I really love this because we cut and find that we've been watching this the entire time on a television in the room of someone who has hung themselves and it's just left to play as if it was their favorite film or whatever they're going to watch before they died. But it raises an interesting question to me because the lead character, when he walked into the video store, was reading the suicide letter of the gentleman from Monday morning. So if this was a movie that somebody was watching as they killed themselves, did the events of the very first day Monday happen within a movie, within a movie, within a movie? Confusing? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's like the whole letter thing. There's a letter in almost every day of the story, and so it's really, really easy and understandable as to why most people would think that they're all the same letter, but you gotta look at the envelope that all of them are in. And does it mean anything? No. 
there's just a lot of letters. What it means is bad writing, and I don't. That's not an insult. It, it, I'm sure Jörg Bootgreed himself can stand forward and say there's some bad writing in this movie. There's two or three places where you're visually shown something that just doesn't connect, and it has nothing to do with anything else. It's just there, and it's bad writing. It happens. It doesn't mean anything. It just means there's some bad writing. That's what it fucking means. I hate having to explain things, but I feel at the same time you kind of have to because. It's so easy for people to take simple words, the idea of death, and turn it into something so drastically different than what it was in the first place. But that sort of is, I guess, the beauty of things, so it's defeating for me to even bring up a complaint. Fuck. Open interpretations. Everything has... Everything has open interpretations. There's nothing that you can look at that, that doesn't. Good or evil. Death or life. I'm not trying to argue the fact that gravity exists or anything like that. Wednesday begins... With another letter. This segment, I'll admit, is, is going to be my most open and, and maybe candid interpretation. And I'll go ahead and say, I don't know if I've ever fully understood what I'm seeing here. It, it's a Miss 45 reference. It's, it's obviously a Miss 45 homage, rather. This woman, she has a letter. We can see a little bit of it. Again, we've got the moody music playing. Very similar score to Necromantic. It's raining. But it most certainly is not the letter from the beginning of the movie. Confusing? Yes, it is. This woman arrives at a park bench and she finds a man sitting in the rain. She sits down next to him and he begins telling her a, a fairly disturbing story about his wife. About making love to his wife and how she bleeds constantly. And it, it, it moves forward and forward and forward. And just like the last two days, it's mundane. You're, you're hearing this story from an obviously selfish man. A, a disturbed man. And it eventually blows up. And you find out as the film, this effect, it kind of sucks when you're watching it at home. Because you know, if you're watching it at home, there's nothing wrong with, with your DVD, your Blu-ray, whatever you're watching it on. But for the original audience in theaters, the film begins to jump and skip, and it looks like the reel has gotten distorted. The audio drastically changes, it becomes garbled and a little bit scary, and he's explaining he just snapped with his temper over his wife, and he removed her head from the body and all of this is is just becoming deeply intense but you're sitting at home and you're watching it on a small screen and it's like all right yeah and that's neither here nor there but i think the chaos of this segment is a bit lost when you're watching it at home and what i've always felt in this situation is is the woman is sort of a death queen a, a death priest a death priestess she removes a gun from her bag and she points it at his head and pulls the hammer back and he takes it from her and shoots himself in the mouth bringing up that Miss 45 reference, to me, I have taken this as the film allowing you to see what happens when people take death into their own hands, when people become death, when people take the personification forward, that maybe she's someone that receives these letters that you can reach out to. A Jack Kevorkian type, if you will. You let this person know your sins and they come and absolve you with death. But it's really an invocation of death. And furthers my idea that we're watching everything through death. Through the visage of death. The entity of death. Though a mortal human steps forward and can maybe cause it or represent or be the reason for death, death still is present. Death still has its job and it's there and that's what we're shown in the scene. She does everything but kill him because we're watching this. We are death. As the days go on and death continues... We watch a corpse degrade. The beginning of the film shows us a perfect human body, laying naked, 
And as each day progresses, we see this corpse degrade, rotting slowly. And you think of your loved ones. Think of somebody that died 30 years ago. Eventually, there's nothing left of them. But is it really also horrifying? I mean, you return to the same void in which you came from. There's, there's a cycle of naturality through all of it, and that's what you're exposed to with this corpse that is degrading as the movie progresses. It is beautiful at one point. It is a perfect idea of a human being, and then it slowly begins being eaten by bugs. Its flesh falls from the bone. It becomes putrefied. And what we're exposed to when we move into Thursday is a partially rotten corpse and the beauty of nature, bugs and things, learning their life and going on to feed their families and things progressing because things can't stop. I mean, of course they can. You die. Things stop. But that doesn't mean everything has stopped. Because in the end, nature is infinite. The one thing that will always remain. The stillness. The breeze. Things like that are forever. Thursday is the most simplistic and what you could say the most film school year one. But it's also one of the most haunting. It's simply footage of locations around this bridge. And you've got names with ages and occupations displayed every few seconds on screen. It takes a few moments because you're expecting something to happen. You're expecting to see... You're expecting to see... Life. But you are watching a movie entirely about... Death. If you think of the film's subject matter, it all comes to you very quickly. These are the names of people who have ended their lives at this location. And death can be anything. Death can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing. It can be an idea. It, it can truly be all things. It can be almost the omnipotent idea of God. Because it's indestructible. It's eternal. It's forever. And that's the representation of Thursday. It's just a place. Because death can be a place. It can be anything. You don't need to see them die. You can understand the woe. You can understand what has happened. These people came to this place and they all had the same thought. And to make it even more dreary, it was filmed at an actual quote-unquote suicide bridge in Bavaria called the Golshk Viaduct. But in this sequence, you've got no soundtrack. Just the haunting, hollow sound of the wind. Which that itself really adds to the whole somber vibe. There's something peaceful about it. I know when you when you think of someone taking their life, when you when you think of someone dying, it's the ugliest, most terrifying thing you could think of. Why would they do that? But there is, in some situations, beauty. There is an acceptance. The idea that you know when you're going to die or you know what's going to happen. You, you fully come to terms with absolutely everything. And by no means does the statement mean that, yes, Hank on the podcast I like to listen to said death is like absolution, you know, and if... You're going to die, you can take control of your life. We'll talk about that furthermore <laughs> in a little while because, like I said, this movie has just about everything in it. But what we're seeing here is that peaceful neutrality, the understanding, the acceptance, the end, the, the utmost quiet, peaceful nature of the end because that's what happens when something ends. It just gets very, very quiet. When you're watching a movie and it ends, what happens? It gets quiet. When you're driving in your car and you turn it off, what happens? It gets quiet. When you die, it just gets quiet. Because there's nothing. At least in this reality. I think what happens to be the darkest part of this segment 
is the fact that all of these lost lives, all of these people, we don't see them. All we have is their names, age, and their occupation. There's nothing more left. There is nothing more of the personification. Their memories, their dreams, their thoughts, their wishes, their favorite songs, their favorite tastes, their favorite smell, all these things are lost with them completely. And we are left with just their names, occupation, and their age, and where they died, almost their personification in death. And when this movie begins, a quote is placed upon the screen. What kills me will remain my secret. I think that is evident the most on Thursday. We see the corpse further decay. The body deconstructs and returns more to the earth. Bugs feed. The circle of life infinitely continues. It's all unifying. It's not gore. It's not the same as what we see in Necromantic. We see this corpse slowly rotting and it's being used selfishly as this possession of very unstable people, this token of love between the two. We see here the, the true purity, the, the beauty of it all. You return physically. You, you took so much from the earth as you live and now you return to it. There's something beautiful about that. You're paying it back. I don't think anything that we're visually shown on screen is, is supposed to be terrifying or grotesque or... Well, no, that's not true, because some of the things, the actions of the people, the actions of men, the actions of humans, even in death, the, the ugly nature of humans is very present. There is a shallow nature, there is a consumeristic nature. You have thoughts on culture, society, not just West German, but culture and society in general. That was present when you have the whole Gestapo thing and the Nazi was ranting about that. It's all there. It, 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 it's all fucking there. I'm not just making it up as I go along. It's visually there. Friday features another letter. And this is the letter that is misconstrued to be the one throughout the entire movie. Many people think this is the letter that the gentleman was writing on Monday. But you can see what he's writing. It isn't German, but it's not the same thing. But I guess when you think about it, letters do have a great deal of involvement with death. Suicides, at least. So another letter appears. This segment, we've got a nosy neighbor. It begins with her watching a couple from her balcony in her apartment. She's looking upon the crossway, and she sees a young man and a woman happy and brave. They're making out. They're really getting hot and heavy. It's Jörg Butgerit, by the way, the director of this picture. And she's watching them, and it's, it's longingly. I mean, you can tell that she might be fantasizing. She might be disgusted. I know this has got to be getting repetitive, but it's mundane. She's just watching someone. Like when you're staring at the person in line in front of you at the store, you're just watching somebody. If somebody was watching you watching somebody else, would they even really know or be able to figure out what's, what's going on? You just know they're watching someone. She goes inside and wanders around the halls of her apartment complex. She steals somebody's mail. She goes through the phone book and tries to call the person in the apartment she was watching. And then finally, she decides to open her mail. And it's a chain letter that begins with, We lose our life with joy. It's a chain letter of death, and its message is demanding the recipient take their life. I die, therefore I am. And this segment alone, Friday, I, I think this is the one that ends up confusing people the most, because you are exposed to multiple letters throughout the entirety of the film, and none of them are really read. None of them are really dealt with. It's just a part of life. It's just a part of the movie. But this one seems to be the focus. When it just so happens they're all sort of disambiguated from each other and have nothing to do with one another. They're just letters. And you can take of this what you will, a cult of death. What is their motive? What is their reasoning? She doesn't know. We don't know. In fact, she tears it up. She stole this from somebody several flats over. 
It's not even her mail. Like the last segment, it's eerily quiet. But unlike the last segment, you're watching something. You you are, are physically seeing someone, so it doesn't feel as eerie. It doesn't feel as empty. She has a few nips of the bottle and begins to eat some candy and falls asleep. And we go into her dream world where we see as a child she walked in on two adults, probably her parents, having sex. And this, this is more of a statement on voyeurism than anything else. It explains why she liked to watch the people across the street. It explains why she was creeping through her apartment complex stealing people's mail. We get this brief but yet intimate look at who this person is, who we don't know whatsoever, just a person living somewhere like you or I that all have eccentricities of our own, that all have weird little flares about us of our own that we couldn't explain. And she awakes and longingly looks outside, hoping to see the couple again. Maybe at this point we feel we're let to know for some gratification, for something that may bring some light into her day. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's for filth, it doesn't matter if it's sexual, it doesn't matter if it just brings her a glimpse of joy seeing that these people have had fun. Maybe she's lonely, maybe she can't connect to people. We can go back to the guy in the very first segment on Monday who was this fish of a man trapped inside of his own tank. A very ugly tank. No peace, no beauty in his world. Very similar things. All of these people, they all seem to be craving something. They're all lonely. And for the most part, I'm willing to say I feel most people, I feel... Remember, I'm saying that every time. I feel, it's my opinion. This isn't fact. This isn't fucking college course. I'm just saying some stuff that I feel. Most people that kill themselves are very lonely. But isn't everyone? It's, again, like life and death, something we all have in common, even if you're surrounded by friends and family. Isn't there something you crave? That could be a form of loneliness. Isn't there something that you wanted 20 years ago that you still dream about or those old glory days, blah, 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 blah. It's all a form of loneliness. She yearns for something, some form of connection. And what we see at the very end of this is those two beautiful lovers that were in an embrace. They've killed themselves. The last bit of Friday shows us the woman going inside her flat from the balcony rather dejected and disappointed that she didn't get to see anyone. And then we see them dead in their bed in their apartment across the way. I find this one to be very interesting because you don't know or understand the concept of, of really anything at all on, on this planet. But people kill themselves, and the survivors of that death, they wonder for the rest of their lives, why did they do this? Did they mean to do this? Was this an accident? How could this have happened? You can look at somebody and you can see them laugh, you can see them live, you can see them cry, you can see them at their worst moments, and never quite understand what's going on. Somebody can sit and tell you exactly what's going on and, and try and let you know and you still can't feel it. That is something entirely of the person, entirely unique to their perception. And it becomes rather devastating. Most of these do at the end, the conclusion, when you, when you realize that this has been this vision of loneliness. We've watched this person whose days are filled with nothing. They have nothing. They have no one. And the small glimpse of happiness they have is watching the two people across the street kiss their passion, their desire filling her all the while these people aren't passionate these people are filled with misery and woe and they're preparing to fucking kill themselves everything is perception you don't know anything you don't know any anything at all you don't know what anyone looks like through anyone else's eyes or what anyone looks like through their own eyes so the week ends i think with a very mystifying and philosophical look at death you you have no concept of when it's going to happen what's going to happen and we're we're mainly talking about suicide here when it comes to car accidents fires murders and freak occasions all sorts of stuff shark attacks 
And let's look at Anton Yelchin's death. A terrible incident. Nobody expected that to happen. It's still all a little bit different than suicide, because that's taking the matters directly, the person, into their own hands. And Friday allows us to see suicide through somebody else's perception. This isn't through the eyes of death. This is through the eyes of man. This is through the eyes of somebody that eventually will be affected by it. She's going to learn of this. There will be ambulances. It might be in the newspaper, and she'll sit and she'll look out her window and know those were the people that I used to get a flare of life from. I used to feel something watching them all the while they were slowly dying, which that itself should make you realize each person you encounter and everyone you see, you, you, you really don't know anything at all. We see more of the decaying corpse, and at this point, it's gotten rather putrefied. His flesh is falling off the bone. It doesn't really look like a human anymore. There's an idea of a human, but there's not much left. It's returned so much to, I don't want to say it's natural state. Before you're born, when you're in utero, you're just really a sack of weird nothing. Your butthole forms, and it eventually becomes your mouth, and you go from a strange sack of goo and become a walking, talking, miserable human being, just like everybody else. But I mean, a butterfly begins as this weird, squirmy, wormy little bug thing, and then makes a cocoon, liquefies itself, and can fly. So what's to say that death isn't a metamorphosis of its own, that there isn't a transition? But this movie doesn't explore those concepts. This movie doesn't add any mystification to what happens when you die. Each day that ends is with death, and it ends because that's what happens. When you die, this adventure, it's ended. And now we move to Saturday. Because of events that have happened in the last 20 years, Saturday's segment, I think, is far more terrifying than it was upon its initial release. We begin with somebody saying it appears to be test footage, and we, we see footage. It's a person holding a pistol of some kind which transitions to a girl and a woman reading into a microphone. And the subject matter, of course, is death. She's reading about merciless mass murderers. And then we move to a new scene in which the woman we had just seen, she's in a room, she's preparing for something, and we're watching this through the eye of her camera. Death doesn't seem to be present here. She's strapping on a big rig that will allow her to carry a camera hands-free. And after she gets the camera rig loaded, she pulls out a gun and she loads it as a bit of a taxi driver homage here, but what I really like is the camera's steady. We're following it through directly the camera's eyes. As I mentioned, there is no one else. There is no room for death. We're watching all of this, and it runs maybe seven or eight minutes. No dialogue, just someone getting prepared, somebody facing something. And obviously we're being led to believe something terrible is going to happen. And visually it's all there. You've got them looking into the mirror with this finalization of this is this. And of course, like many other segments, there is no sound. Just the natural sound of what's happening in the room. Now we transition to this person walking up the stairs of a nightclub and the woman we have been watching, presumably, she shoots an employee directly in the face and then walks into the theater where a rock and roll band is playing and begins to shoot the band and the audience. This movie came out in 1990, many, many years before the tragic events that happened at the Damage Plan concert, Dimebag Daryl and many audience members losing their life. And obviously knowing that, you can't help but hearken a relationship between these two things. And it, it really, this may be one of the most disturbing segments in the movie because of that. And of course you've got the Batman theater shootings a few years ago. And in the United States, about every two hours there's a school shooting. There is something terrible happening gun-related in this country. So you've got to think back to an era, and especially a country that has had a great deal of gun violence themselves. This representation culturally... This is even before something like Columbine happened. You see it now, unfortunately, I don't think it has the, the greater effect 
that it would have beforehand for American audiences or Western audiences in general because of how much this happens. And that's the, the really frightening thing about this, and it takes us to some of the other topics that I've discussed of what happens when people step in for death, what happens when the representation of death becomes human. Is death still present? And in this situation, we're still watching things through the eyes of the camera. Finally, an armed audience member shoots the assailant, and it cuts again to show that all of this was footage from some sort of movie. This might be more philosophical than anything else, but it doesn't seem to represent anything to me when you're, when you're watching this as a whole. You get to Saturday, and it's almost like Saturday morning cartoons. It's just blind. It's watching the idea of death. It's, it's maybe the only one in the movie that has no representation in my opinion. I would say it's my least favorite. I said earlier Friday definitely wasn't my favorite, now I've said Saturday is my least favorite, so I guess at some point that means I have to say which one is my favorite. It's Thursday. Thursday's my favorite. And I think the most emotional. But now we're at the end of the week. It's Sunday. Or the beginning of the week. The corpse is nearly gone now. It's bare bones. The bugs have moved on. There's a little bit of rotten flesh that's gotten leathery with time. But it's turned back to the earth. It's turned to nothing. An infinite nothing. A vast nothing. Because it's turned into everything. It's become a part of everything. We see a man in his room. And it's a very, very uncomfortable man in his room. And he's seemingly having a nervous breakdown. He's crying and he's sobbing. He's unconsolable. <laughs> Something is wrong. What? It doesn't matter. We're not shown what's wrong. That's not the moment that we're experiencing here. This one, dare I say, there's this movie called The Abyss. Or rather, Le Abyss, because I'm not talking about the James Cameron movie. 1963, directed by Nico Papatakis. It's about the Papin sisters, and the movie is just absolute insanity. First ten minutes of the film is an insane argument happening between our two lead characters with absolutely no frame of reference. It's psychotic. It's just this dance of absolute madness. And this is strikingly similar to something like that because it's absolute emotion. And the reason I bring it up, it's like John Cassavetes, which Nikos Papatakis produced John Cassavetes' first film. It doesn't matter what the story is. It doesn't matter what has happened before this. It's the emotion that's being captured to us directly in the scenes that we are witnessing and what we are experiencing is this person's breakdown and their, their utmost worst pain. It's the performance. It's the idea of the emotion. They're deeply upset. They're slamming their own head against the wall repetitively over and over and over again, and you are a part of this psychosis. This, I think, is the most present representation of you, the witness of death, watching, waiting. Does death even have to do something? Does death have to put its finger on you and then boom, you die, or does death just have to be present? The idea of death. Because, you see, the whole point of this, what we've been discussing, is this, this presence we have this personification of death, but death isn't such a thing. It's just there. It's a force. It exists. So wouldn't it just be there, present in the room? It doesn't need to touch you. It doesn't need to embrace you. In fact, there is no sweet embrace of death. It's something that's present all the time. It's here in the room with you right now. Because the air you breathe in comes out as something different. The air is dead. It's constant. So you, as death, watched this. You watched the psychosis. You feel it, just waiting for the moment. Then this man just slams his head against the wall over and over and over and over and over and over 
and over and over again. Until he dies. It's vague, and it seems senseless. But can't the same thing be said about death? The body is now gone, the body we've been watching in between every day of the week. And I feel this maybe is a reference to suicide itself. The act of suicide. Jorg Butgerit says on the subject, Don't commit suicide. Nothing happens after that. Which to me makes a great deal of sense to the rotting body that we have been seeing throughout the entire movie and its meaning, what it means. At the end, there is no more body, there is nothing. It's become, on one hand, infinite, on the other hand, nothing. This movie is constantly referred to as being pro-suicide, it's a glorification of suicide. If anything, it's a representation of the vast nothing, of, of all the things that are distinctly yours, your memories, your thoughts, your breath, the touches, the feelings, the smells, the tastes that you've acquired and accumulated throughout your life, almost journaled in your memories and your thoughts. They are distinctly yours. Why lose them? Why let them become part of the infinite nothing and let them go? I think, in the long run, the message and the point of what Jorg was trying to say is a really positive thing. And anti-suicide, live your life, love life, the whole fucking rant from train spotting. Choose life. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol, and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing fucking junk food into your mouth. Choose rotting away at the end of it all, pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish, fucked-up brats that you've spawned to replace yourselves. Choose your future. Choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? Or the lesser rant from Trainspotting 2. Choose life. Choose life was a well-meaning slogan from a 1980s anti-drug campaign. And we used to add things to it. So I might say, for example, choose... Designer lingerie. In the vain hope of kicking some life back into a dead relationship. <laughs> choose handbags. Choose high-heeled shoes, cashmere and silk to make yourself feel what passes for happy. Choose an iPhone made in China by a woman who jumped out of a window and stick it in the pocket of your jacket fresh from a South Asian fire trap. I think there's a lot of beauty in the, the mesmerizing amount of darkness and the gratuitous amount of death that you are shown in this movie. I think there is something inequivocably beautiful about that. You're exposed to a drastic, a, a very heavy amount of death and sadness and that, that whole idea of people in their last moments so broken, so upset, they're going to end absolutely everything. And that's what the movie's capturing. Each day of the week, you're watching somebody kill themselves. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. That's not enjoyable. What sort of story possibly could be told with something so dark? 
there doesn't seem to be any positivity, and I really beg to differ. I, I really feel there is almost an overwhelming amount of positivity because of what you're exposed to and the various ways you're exposed to it, and also the mundane nature of how you're exposed to it, because that's just what life is. Life mostly is standing around and waiting for something to happen, and then it never happens and you die. And you wonder the entire time, was anything ever going to happen when something could have been, you could have been doing it! Doesn't matter what! You're shown the finalization, you're shown the ending, you're given the idea of what happens with this jump, this thought, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna kill myself. Then there's nothing. There's just this rotting body, and progressively, Der King shows us that fucking body, man! I mean, you see it. I don't think it's, it's meant to be scary, I don't think it's meant to be threatening. Don't do this! Don't do that! This is what happens, there's nothing. It's all much more open-ended than that, and it returns us to the beginning of the show discussing the name of this movie, Der Todesking. It's a bastardization of an English and a German word. It doesn't mean anything, but it could mean anything. It could mean the king of deaths, the death king. The king of deaths. A force that is there whether you like it or not. Nothing you can do about it. But do you need to fear it? And on that subject, wouldn't fearing it empower it? Death is nothing more than life. And life is nothing more than death. You fear one but you acknowledge the other as to where you should embrace both of them. Why fear death if you don't fear life? And if you don't fear life, are you living? All these concepts and more, Dare Totus King. Jorg Bootgreet. That's why he's one of my favorite artists. There are a lot of questions that he asks. There's a lot of things that you can read into. There's a lot more on screen than people dying in 16 millimeter. The film ends with this child that we saw at the very beginning drawing a sketch of a skeleton. The Death King. She looks at us and she says, This is the Death King. He makes people want to die. And then we see an absolutely stunning photo. I, w I wish there would have been film of this. I wish this might have played more into the movie. Maybe perhaps when you see the body rotting or at the beginning, just a beautiful photo of what is supposed to be the Death King, a man sitting, a very emaciated looking man sitting with a crown on his head and a child, it's a black and white photo. And the movie goes to credits with photos of children, a representation of innocence, the future, the hopes and dreams of all these things you just saw that have accumulated into the, the vast nothing, that have become nothing, that everything you just saw died, but it starts at some point of innocence. It's, it's all a, a very grand representation of the cycle of life and death, but I think it's neutral. I think it's ambiguous. I don't consider it a horror movie, really. I don't, I don't see... I don't see the same features. I don't see the same exploitative nature in this film as, as everything else that, that York Bootgreet has done. And that, of course, isn't meant in a negative way because I love exploitation film, because I enjoy this man's work. But I think this film itself stands for something different. Take of it what you will, Der Todesking, 1990. And just like in death, all things must end. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Death by DVD. You have been listening to Hank, the world's greatest. If there's a movie that you would like to hear discussed on Death by DVD, just head over to www.deathbydvd.com and shoot us a message. Let us know. You can also email us at deathbydvd at deathbydvd.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Death by DVD. Thank you for listening. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. You'll hear from me next week. Death by
by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Thank you.